again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-supported community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm Stu Levitin, and I hope you're enjoying our new format of multiple hosts. It's so good to share time with George and Angela and Devin. My guest today is William S. Becker, Executive Director of the Presidential Climate Action Project and author of The Creeks Will Rise, People Coexisting with Floods, from the good people at Chicago River Press. Floods are a fact of life and have been that way forever. Almost every culture around the world has a creation myth that features a flood. Today, they remain a necessary part of nature, renewing the soil and creating new habitats. But while floods are natural, flood damages are not. They are solely the responsibility of humankind. And it's a massive responsibility. Thanks to our decades of building in floodplains, Floods are also the most frequent and most expensive type of weather disaster in the United States, accounting for 90% of our natural disasters. From 1980 to 2019, the United States suffered $32 billion floods, averaging about $5 billion in flood damages a year, part of the $1.6 trillion in weather-related damages during that time. And during that period, the Kickapoo River in southwest Wisconsin suffered four floods after seven between 1907 and 1978. And even though none of them were billion-dollar floods, the people of the valley had had enough after the flood of 1935 and in 1937 asked Washington for help. It finally came in 1962, authorization for an Army Corps of Engineers dam on the upper river just below Lafarge, designed not only to stop floods, but also to create an income-generating recreation area. Weather-related disasters are only going to get worse as the climate crisis produces ever more intense weather events and the aging infrastructure of 92,000 dams and 30,000 miles of levees fails at an ever-increasing rate. According to the University of Bristol, 43 million Americans and $1.2 trillion in assets are currently at risk of floods in the lower 48 states. And if we make it to the next century, analysts expect that two and a half million properties worth more than a trillion dollars will experience chronic flooding and 30 cities will be underwater. How and why we need to change our national water policy from trying to control floods to avoiding them is the business that occupies Bill Becker in this book that is both frightening and inspiring. And it's a book he is uniquely qualified to write as an expert in alternative energy and one of the key figures in the successful effort in the late 70s to oppose that dam across the upper Kickapoo and get the village of Soldiers Grove to move its business district out of the floodplain and onto higher ground. After helping move Soldiers Grove, he moved on to become counselor to the administrator of the Small Business Administration, spent 12 years as regional director and special assistant to the assistant secretary of the U.S. Department of Energy, founded and was co-director of the Future We Want, and since 2011 has been a senior fellow at Natural Capitalism Solutions, a nonprofit founded by environmentalist and author Hunter Lovins. But before all that, and critical to his narrative, he was a photojournalist first for the U.S. Army in Vietnam in the mid-60s, later for the Associated Press in Madison, and most critically, with the Kickapoo Scout in Soldier's Grove. It is a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Bill Becker. Stu, thank you. That was a fantastic introduction. You covered all the ground there. And thanks for being with us today, Bill. My pleasure. Start by setting the scene in Soldier's Grove and along the Kickapoo Valley when you got there in the late 1960s. Sure. It, uh, as you pointed out, had been a, uh, um, an area of Wisconsin that was subject to repeated flooding. Uh, and Soldiers Grove, when I got there, was a, a wonderful old main street. You could see the remnants of its heyday. Uh, but it was uh, so frail from all the floods that you could pretty much blow it down. In fact, uh, I, I say in the book, a, a scene where I was watching uh, one building. Uh, it was owned by Marie Herbst, who was owner of the, uh, one of the bars in Soldiers Grove. And uh, it was at the stage where we were, we were demolishing the old community and a bulldozer approached and almost scared the building into falling down. It just <laughs> collapsed. And uh, that was uh, evidence about how frail the community was. So uh, what happened was the federal government and the state of Wisconsin passed laws 
uh, limiting the amount of reconstruction you could do after a flood or the amount of maintenance you could even do on an ongoing way in a building uh, that was in a, a floodplain or prone to flooding. And what that meant was when the next flood hit, anything left standing, we couldn't even repair anymore. And so Soldiers Grove pretty much was under a death certificate because of this law uh, and because of the natural impact of flooding. Uh, and so remarkably, the whole town got behind the idea of, of moving the town, which is a, a kind of a radical approach in those days. Not many had done it, uh, but everybody realized it was only the only way to save the community. Um, and although the Corps of Engineers offered Soldiers Grove a levy, uh, as part of the Lafarge Dam project, uh, the community felt it was uh, is, was not going to stop the Kickapoo because it was just too wild a river at times, and also it cost three and a half million dollars to protect a million dollars worth of property. So we thought that was kind of ridiculous. And, and uh, as I was leaving a meeting where the Corps of Engineers presented this plan uh, to Soldiers Grove in the uh, 1970s, finally. Um, uh, one of the bar owners, a guy named Pat Young, turned to me and said, you know, we just ought to pick this place up and move it out of here. And he and I laughed about it. But then about two o'clock the next morning, I woke up saying, hey, it's not too bad an idea, actually. And I went down to my newspaper office and I wrote up a proposal to relocate Soldiers Grove. And that was the beginning of it. Um, and uh, the, I, I was just so impressed with the town of, you know, retired farmers and mom and pop shopkeepers uh, who'd been in there over a century in that town and being willing to take a bold step like this. And uh, not only that, but one of the, the local, uh, the owner of the local uh, feed mill, Wilford uh, Burkham, who's still alive, uh, went on radio in Chicago and said, you know, this is right after the oil crisis of the 70s, you know, they, they, we ought to do some of that solar. And so uh, we did and uh, turned Solar's Grove, the new town into the first passive solar heated community in the United States. So all in all, I was just amazed at uh, how, how creative this uh, community was willing to be, but it had its back up against the wall. Yeah. Let's, there's a lot in that to unpack. Let's go back to the nature of the Kickapoo and the nature of land in Wisconsin and why the Kickapoo was so prone to floods and what, what that meant over time to the people who lived there. You bet. Well, it's part of the unglaciated part of Wisconsin, so it uh, consists of rolling hills, about 300-foot hills, and spring-fed creeks running through the valleys, uh, feeding into the Kickapoo River. Um, and over time, the, uh, the hillsides have been denuded first by forestry in the early part of the last century, and then by farming. So when rain fell on those hills, it didn't stop where it, where it fell. It, it cascaded down into the river and then gradually carried silt and silted in the river banks so it could hold less water and on and on and on until flooding became a, a, a very a chronic problem starting in the early 1900s. Um, so it's an area that uh, was very prone all the way up and down all the villages uh, from Lafarge and even above Lafarge all the way down to the Wisconsin River uh, were prone to these kinds of floods and were in very similar condition to what Soldiers Grove was, which was not very good. The Kickapoo is not a particularly straight and direct river. Did, did that uh, affect its flood potential? Well, actually, it, uh, it helped prevent floods. Uh, a natural way that a river uh, controls its own volumes is to meander like that. Uh, it slows down the flow. And, uh, and so it gives the uh, water time to be absorbed into the ground um, or to inhabit wetlands. And it's actually a way to mitigate flooding. Uh, what, what's happened over the past, well, since the 1930s is that the Corps of Engineers has tended to straighten river channels out and line them with concrete, especially through urban areas, which makes the water go through a village like a, like a freight train and it exacerbates flooding down river. The water volume goes down river more quickly. So, um, but yeah, the uh, Kickapoo is one of the most, uh, or is known as one of the most, um, bendy rivers in the country. It just winds its way through all these hills until, like I said, it gets to the Wisconsin River. Um, but the larger point there is that by changing rivers, thinking that we were going to control flooding, which I think is, uh, is something we probably can't do. We, we could avoid it, but controlling flooding has turned out to be not a good strategy uh, because floods are so fierce, we, we, we just haven't been able to do it structurally very well. Um, Instead of that, the approach ought to be, and I point out in the book, ought to be to uh, collaborate with nature and put back some of these natural features like wetlands 
and river meander and uh, revegetation of hillsides and watersheds to let nature do uh, some of the flood control, if not all of it. Uh, and that's something that is happening in a few places around the United States, even with the Corps of Engineers' help. Uh, they're, for example, restoring the meander in the Kissimmee River in Florida, which is really interesting. They had channeled it, uh, like I said, it's a straight shot from one place to another and it turned out not to work. So they're putting that meander back again. Uh, so gradually we're learning, but we need to learn more quickly because there's a lot of people who are gonna suffer this as climate change gets worse. Uh, these damages are gonna become just extraordinarily expensive. They already are. Um, and it turns out that it's much less expensive over time to relocate towns out of these danger areas and put the burden of change on people instead of on the rivers, let the river be a river, uh, it turns out to be uh, less expensive monetarily to do that as well as uh, saving lives. Because water will reach its own level. When did you first realize the threat of the, the floods in the Kickapoo? Well, when I got there, of course, I um, and took over the paper, which was in the mid 1970s. Um, I looked into the village's history because I wanted to know the community of which I was about to become a part. Uh, and read this entire history that you, you mentioned about how the, uh, all the communities of the Kickapoo had asked for a dam back in the 30s, and then World War II came along, and then uh, the Korean War, and Congress uh, was paying attention to those and not to dams. Um, but finally, the village had its shot. Uh, and I, I went to the meeting of the Corps to, to announce its long-awaited plan for the Kickapoo Valley with an open mind. Um, but I could hear the rumbling, you know, this was in the middle school gymnasium. The court set up its easels and, and had its engineers there and, um, and uh, gave this presentation about a three and a half million dollar levy. And I could just hear the rumblings in the, in, the, in the gymnasium from the people because they just knew that wasn't gonna work. And, and for one thing, um, the court didn't realize this, but you have to have pumps inside a levy system like that to pump the water out because like a bowl, it'll hold water that pours into it uh, with intensive rainfalls. So you have to have the pumps. And it turned out that the pump, just to maintain and eventually replace the pumps, they would have had to triple their property, annual property tax levy in Soldiers Grove. So the whole thing made no sense at all. And the people knew it. Um, but to go back to your question, I studied the village really hard. It has a very rich history. And one of the things about being a small town weekly newspaper publisher is people wander in all the times with uh, letters they found in their attic from the Civil War or historical pictures or whatever. They just love digging this stuff up and hearing more about their community. And so I'd publish that stuff in the newspaper. And gradually they educated me about the, the nature of this village. Uh, it, it was, it is still just a really wonderful place to live. Um, I mentioned in the book how every dune the fire siren would go off to mark the middle of the day and all the dogs in the community would start howling. and. And if there was a fire, the shopkeepers would pour out and run down to the fire station and jump in the trucks. And, and there was just a feeling of uh, a really warm coherence in this community. So I was really privileged to be part of it while I was. And, and how much did the fight over the dam disrupt that sense of community among the various communities in the valley? It was uh, really intense and bitter and emotional. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, all of those towns were economically depressed to use federal parlance. They were uh, poor and had been for a very long time. Um, and they saw this uh, reservoir, this lake that was going to be built as salvation. It was going to bring in recreationalists and, and recreational businesses, uh, the upper Kickapoo, and especially the people in Lafarge who have been most benefited from the, from the lake um, were really, really intensely in favor of it with a few exceptions. Um, but down in Soldiers Grove, uh, we would not have benefited that much. We were too far down river. Uh, all the tributaries between us and the dam would have kept fedding flood water into Soldiers Grove. Um, and so we didn't, uh, we weren't so supportive as the people upriver were. Um, and eventually we had got the village board in Soldiers Grove to sign a petition or a resolution opposing the dam as it became clear that it was not the solution. There were a lot of studies in those days too. Gaylord Nelson uh, was pushing from Congress to see this studied and uh, Pat Lucy was governor. Uh, and a lot of studies showed that the water would eutrophy because of all the uh, uh, nitrogen uh, deposits from manure and the farmlands around. Um, and it just wouldn't be the, you know, the uh, salvation that people thought it would be. It would be when a lake eutrophies, it gets scummy and people get swimmers itch when they swim in it. And so and there were some, uh, 
um, very sensitive species that would have been inundated. And what bothered me the most is that the upper Kickapoo, for any of you who've been there and canoed it or, or traveled through it to the Kickapoo Valley Reserve, as it's now called, uh, know that this is one of the beautiful, most beautiful places in the country, untouched by the glaciation period, uh, so that it has a feeling as, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of years old, which it is. So it would, that would be uh, turn, uh, you know, put underwater forever. It would silt in, destroy all the features of the land. It was just not the kind of place that, that uh, should be destroyed. I felt that way, and a lot of people in Soldier's Court did too. Was there serious physical or economic intimidation of those who opposed the dam? Yeah, um, and I understood it. Uh, even, even I, with uh, well, being a newcomer, first of all, I was a good target because uh, I had strolled in from the city thinking I knew everything, uh, at least that's the way it was described. And, uh, you know, had this plan to really upend everything that the village had been working on, the villages had been working on for generations. Um, but it was very emotional because as I said, uh, the communities like Lafarge saw this as their economic salvation. And the truth is, if you go there through the Kikwu Valley, uh, through all these communities today, you see that they're still, still very, very poor. Um, I think the, what happened eventually, I should, step back a minute, um, is that the land that had been bought, I think it was more than 9,000 acres, but a good, good swatch of land in the upper valley that had been farmland was bought uh, by force sometimes, by uh, condemnation, um, to turn it into uh, this lake. And once the lake was canceled, the, the federal government owned all this land and the, the farmers weren't farming there anymore. They had moved out. Um, and eventually, after many, many hearings and public meetings and all this kind of thing, it was turned into a, this Kickapoo Valley Reserve, which in large part is a natural reserve and in part went to Native Americans, back to one of the tribes that originally owned it back in the day. Um, so it's a very, very beautiful place to visit right now. Uh, but it, I don't think, is drawing in enough recreation dollars to, to really turn the economic situation around for these communities. And this is not unusual in a rural area, as you know, and I, I think the whole country has got to look more closely at the rural areas and the value they bring and how to help revitalize them and repopulate them and bring jobs to them, sustainable jobs. We're talking with William S. Becker. His book is The Creeks Will Rise, People Coexisting with Floods from Chicago River Press. Uh, as you noted, you were the one who wrote the proposal entitled Relocation, an Alternative for the Village of Soldiers Grove, which the Village Board authorized you to send to the Corps of Engineers. And you also used the Kickapoo Scout to advocate for that position. Would the relocation of Soldiers Grove have happened without you? Well, I don't know if that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. I know, like I said, Pat Young, one of the bar owners, sort of popped this idea as a joke. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't unknown this this possibility. I don't know, and I. I think so. I, I think um, given the wall that the community was up against, um, that solution would have occurred to them. One of the things I did, because it seemed so implausible to move a town, even a small town, uh, is piled in the car with the village board and a friend of mine, and we went to Niobrara, Nebraska, which is the very first community ever to be relocated in total in the United States. And that started back in, let's see, 1881 was the first, first time it was moved. Um, but what was happening is that the Corps built a dam downriver from Nairobrera, and that caused the water table to rise above the dam and start to uh, flood Nairobrera from underneath. So the Corps finally, after lots of court cases and litigation, uh, admitted fault and was helping the community move. So I took the village president and, and uh, the fellow who eventually would become the, the main relocator of relocation up to Nairobrera. And as we drove into the town, this big Victorian house, huge house was being wheeled down the avenue. They had pulled the power lines up and it was being wheeled down. And we could see through the windows that the breakfast dishes were still on the table. And it was just amazing how gently they were moving this huge building. But right away, the village president saw that and said, well, this is doable, we could do this. And of course we didn't move any, they were too frail, any of the existing buildings in Soldier's Grove, but he knew that moving a town was plausible. Um, so that helped. Um, but I don't know, I, I, I'm not egocentric enough to think that, that it would not have happened without me. But you remember that image from 50 years ago? Yeah, yeah. Without the National Environmental Policy Act of 1970, 
would the dam likely have been built? No. I mean, I'm sorry. Yes, it would have been built um, because there would not have been the studies that eventually turned uh, Governor Lucy and, and uh, Bill Proxmire and Gaylord Nelson uh, against completing the dam. Originally, all of them were in favor of it, except maybe Gaylord. Um, but the governor had signed off on it and everything. But as these studies came in about the environmental impacts um, and the fact that most of the jobs in a project like that usually go to outside corporations, not local people, um, they turned around eventually and opposed it. So uh, the environmental impact statement was, was instrumental, I think, in bringing to light what the real impacts of this project would be. And, and once the people of Soldiers Grove realized that it would cost three and a half million dollars to save a million dollars of downtown business and, and put their and make them exceed their statutory levy limit, mm -hmm. game over. Yeah, yeah. Were you surprised at how quickly the Corps issued a revised plan with relocation instead of levies? No, because uh, at that point where we gave them that proposal, uh, the dam was so controversial that I think they were looking for anything that would win support. And actually, uh, because Soldiers Grove was actively behind the newspaper, was editorializing against the dam. The village had signed a resolution against it. The Corps wanted to turn us around and bring us on in support of the dam because it would not do the relocation of Soldiers Grove or pay for it without doing the dam. They were part and parcel of the same project in the Corps' mind. So no, they said yes, they would uh, help us do that because they wanted to win our support of the overall project. Um, when we continued to oppose the overall project, the Corps withdrew its support and said it would not help us relocate. So how greatly did that complicate the relocation effort? A great deal because that three and a half million dollars in one appropriation would take care of the funding problem right away. But as it turned out, uh, the village hired a fellow um, an architect who had uh, come out there with the back of the land movement from Chicago, uh, who was driving a school bus and he was underemployed. So we got a federal grant to hire him to be the relocation coordinator. And over the next eight years, he and the village went from grant program to grant program to grant program, to bonding, to local fundraising, to using uh, something called the, uh, well, one of the laws of Wisconsin that allows a community to retain its tax dollars for economic development. Used every tool, at its disposal in every federal program that seemed to be applicable to put together the money. And eventually it, it turned into a $6 million project. And that relocation coordinator, someone well known to Madison's architect, Tom Hirsch. That's who it is. He was, he's my hero. He got the, uh, he's the guy who stuck with it and, and uh, worked with the local people very sensitively because we knew both of us, and we were old friends at the time, but we knew that this project had to be owned by the local people. Not by him, not by me, not by anyone. I mean, the local people, this was their future. They had to plan it. They had to agree to it. Um, and so Tom was very, uh, very, very good at that, at, at consulting with and, and listening to and implementing the ideas that he heard locally. He set up an office that had all the maps of the new site and all this kind of stuff on it. So people could walk in and see what was going on. Uh, we had Phil Lewis, who I think is now deceased, but was a landscape architect professor at the University of Wisconsin, uh, rallied his students to come out and help us for free, uh, identify where the best solar site was and how things would be laid out and, and all of that. So it turned into you know, a really a group project. But uh, Tom was at the center of it. He did a fantastic job. I think somewhere along the line, Tom and I served on a commission. Maybe we were both on the plan commission at the same time. But yeah, he's uh, he's quite a fellow, as was Professor Lewis yes. of Blessed Memory. You, you mentioned that the solar innovation and, and some of the other things that the Village Board incorporated in the relocation the standards for handicap accessibility, thermal standards, the passive and active solar. What accounted for that incredible degree of innovation? Well, largely Tom, I think. I mean, he brought us a city perspective, which is not always welcome in a rural area, but he knew of um, um, the idea of making the communities handicapped accessible. Um, Tom, for example, in the way he practiced architecture, if he developed a project, they wouldn't put sidewalks in. They'd come back a year later and they'd see where people had cut paths, you know, to get to where they wanted to go inside the development. And that's where he would put the sidewalks. So Tom was very, hmm. very sensitive to designing for people. 
And in Soldiers Grove's case, I should mention, uh, one of the, the local heroes uh, was a, a guy named Bob Peterson, who eventually became the village president, but he was a high school track star and uh, very fast, and they call it Bullet Bob. Well, he came back from Vietnam uh, paraplegic, shot in the spine. And uh, so they, they were very cognizant of making the village accessible to him and to other uh, elderly people. There were a lot of them in the community. But I think Tom brought a lot of the more innovative ideas. And you're right, the, the town turned into a very progressive project, incorporating the best we knew of, of solar technologies and, and these other features you mentioned. Next year will mark the 40th anniversary of the full relocation. Has it been an unqualified success? No, no, I wouldn't say so because, uh, because of the uh, inherent disadvantages that rural communities have right now. What we used to say to the core is if you come in and build this earth mound around us, you're turning us from a dying community uh, subject to floods into a dying community protected from floods. Um, we need our best chance to stay alive and that's relocation back to a better spot location than we are right now. Um, and that was it, they, they took their best shot but they're still a very poor community and still need uh, attention as many rural communities do. You know, the pattern, and I know you're familiar with this, has been for young people to graduate high school and take off, you know, go off to the city, get good jobs, and many times don't come back. So we need to help these communities be vital enough and vibrant enough to retain the talent you know, of their youth. Anyway, so um, it's been successful in the sense that you mentioned a couple of the uh, record floods that hit in the late 70s uh, in Soldiers Grove or the late 80s. I can't remember which now, but because uh, I wasn't there. But in any case, uh, they went through two 500-year floods, which are huge floods. And uh, the only thing that was destroyed were a tennis court and a, a grandstand that they had put in the old floodplain. Um, it should be to re regress again. What happens when a community relocates? There have been about 40 of them so far. Is that you, you retain the economic value of that floodplain by turning it into a park or a wildlife area or, or, a, or a campground for canoeists or whatever, uh, but you use it. And Soldiers Grove turned it into a park with a veterans memorial and a horse show ring and stuff like that. Well, there was damage to that during these record 500 year floods, but they repaired them in a matter of a couple of weeks and uh, at very low cost. The village was not touched. I mean, the downtown was not touched. There were a couple of homes that had been elevated on earthen mounds and sort of moved uh, that did sustain floods because it never anticipated that intensity. But uh, from a flood control or flood adaptation standpoint, it was very successful. In terms of saving the village and turning it into a thriving community, not so much. Um, that still is a challenge ahead of that village and all the others in the Kickapoo Valley. And what about the other communities in the River Valley that didn't relocate? How has their fate been since this time period? Well, you know, they've, of course, continued to sustain damage as these record floods have come along. And they face a future where they're going to sustain a lot more because these floods all around the world are getting worse because of climate change and more frequent, more intense, more damaging. Uh, and I we're coming to a point, and I mentioned this in the book, I think, where the federal government will, will stop paying for disaster damage and stop paying to help people rebuild because it simply will be unaffordable. So the future is pretty grim for communities that don't act now to adapt to the kind of weather that we're beginning to get. Um, but the other communities are, are in even worse shape than, than Soldiers Grove was when I got there. Uh, Gaze Mills, which was a very prosperous community for the valley uh, when I got there because of its apple orchards. Anybody who's been out that way probably has visited the apple orchards on the hill above Gaze Mills. And a very vibrant town. Uh, the high school was located there, a lot of kids and all of this kind of thing. And we tried to talk it into relocating with us, but it didn't want to do it back in those days, in the late 70s. Um, but now it has. It's relocated many of the buildings, not all of them, but many of the buildings that have been flooded re repeatedly and it's sort of spread out. Um, so there's new development, new buildings, uh, you know, on the periphery of the old downtown, but not prone to flooding anymore. So it's, it finally decided to do it um, because it, it got to a point where it had no choice. Are the people of Lafarge still upset? You know, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, 
I drove through Lafarge just a couple of months ago, and uh, and I could see that it was still you know still in difficult condition. Um, I'm I'm sure they are. I'm sure a lot of them are. Um, you know, one thing that that warmed my heart, I guess. Uh, I talk in the book about the it's a little monument we erected in Soldiers Grove about people working together, being able to do anything. And what I didn't know is that they had erected a monument of sorts up at the beginning of the uh, of the uh, Kickapoo Reserve, where the lake would have been. And it's a building, it's a visitor center, where the names of all the farmers' families that had been moved off their land mm-hmm. are inscribed in the sides of the building. And there's a wonderful plaque talking about that these were the original stewards of the land, that for the centuries that those you know, generations of families lived there, they had stewarded the land. And now is a reserve where the government's stewarding it, but uh, it was a beautiful monument to the, all the people who had to leave their lands uh, for a lake that never was built. That's the heartbreaking part about this is that it was not stopped soon enough to prevent the taking of the land from people who knew what to do with it. Yeah, it is the heartbreaking, the human heartbreaking part. The good part is that that uh, part of the valley, which is rare and beautiful, is preserved now. But uh, at a great cost to uh, to a lot of families, you know, um, they were paid for for their farms, of course, but um, they were of the land. And frankly, I don't know what's become of them all. I, I hope they're doing well. Yeah, that's it, it's a an analog to like the urban renewal stories where where people are where communities are just dispersed and they're gone. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned that the threat of flooding is getting worse. How much worse is it getting? Well, let me see, I have my notes here. <laughs> um, we've got about 41 million people in this country who are in a floodplain. And by that, I mean what they call a 100-year flood, uh, which is a flood that has a 1% chance of happening in any given year. But it's 100-year floodplains are fairly frequently flooded. Um, 500-year floods are much worse. 1,000-year floods are much worse. And we're beginning to see more of those mega floods now more communities are withstanding floods that they never imagined they would have to withstand. But again, 41 million people. Uh, and that doesn't count all the people subject to sea level rise on our coasts. There's another, what, 100 million? I think 40% of the people in the United States live within coastal counties. And sea level rise, as well as growing storm surges, uh, where the ocean is reaching further inland during uh, coastal storms, uh, are subject to flooding too. And um, the cost for them to build seawalls is just extraordinarily expensive. Uh, the cost to build dams and levees is extraordinarily expensive. Um, and right now, the problem with, the problem that we face for this uh, era of structural flood control is that we now have 91,000 dams and more than 30,000 miles of levees in the United States, all of them getting old, all of them getting more vulnerable. Um, none of them designed to handle the kind of weather we're getting now and the kind of weather we're going to continue getting. Uh, and so we have to make a decision whether we're going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars to f- repair these dams and to build them higher, whatever we have to do to, to uh, anticipate the bad weather that's coming, or whether we're going to do something else. And what I advocate in the book and what I've been advocating ever since is that we do something else, and that is help people move out of those paths of disaster and turn these areas back to nature. Uh, And along the coast, that would mean um, planting uh, vegetation, uh, seaside vegetation that absorbs the shock of of waves, destroying wetlands, um, uh, recreating reefs that have been destroyed. There's ways to do that. Um, All all those kinds of natural features that uh, create the buffers that we've destroyed with, with economic development. What's happening, Stu, is that um, flooding is getting worse, not only because the weather's getting worse, but because more and more people keep moving into the path of floods and and tides. Uh, And that's still happening. Um, There's a, the federal government puts every, this is so much information here that floats through my head as we're talking about this, but the federal government every so often, I think it's every four years, puts out the scientific assessment of climate change and what it's going to do to the United States. And one of its predictions is that it's inevitable that these communities are gonna to have to move. It's just inevitable. There's no way they're gonna survive otherwise. Um, but it's better and cheaper that we do it now rather than waiting for the disasters to get even, even worse. 
And so I spent a long time advocating relocation uh, and doing a, what they call a managed retreat from flood zones, you know, helping these communities move out. And what that means is that water policy, which you mentioned at the opening, has to be just totally rebuilt uh, from what it is now. Right now, all of us taxpayers are flood victims because we all pay for the disasters and to rebuild the properties that are damaged. And not only that, but the federal government allows people who've been through a flood to rebuild back in the path of the river or the, or the waves um, where they get flooded again. And so we have this repetitive flooding problem where property owners have gone back to the taxpayers three or four or five times to rebuild their properties. It's just an insane bunch of policies built, built on the assumption that we can control nature and that's the way we should, that's the relationship with nature we should have. So we need to switch from flood control to flood avoidance, just get out of the way. So, so when the Corps of Engineer stops using the term flood control and adopts the term flood risk management, is that significant or is that just federal semantics? Uh, I think it's skin deep significant. Um, I've seen some changes in law, by the way. The Congress has told the Corps to give equal consideration to relocation and what they call non-structural flood control measures. Uh, give equal consideration to natural ways of controlling floods to equal consideration to the structures that you're used to building. But this is a group of engineers, they build things. And one of the reasons that the court wasn't really enthused about getting involved with Soldiers Grove is that those are messy psychological, socioeconomic, political processes, you know, getting people all to agree. It's hard to get three people to agree to anything, but you bring the whole town to agree something radical like this is messy. It's not arithmetic. It's not formulaic. It's not concrete. And so the core feels out, out of its depth or in the, in the past it has. Um, so it's got a ways to go before it feels comfortable with these kinds of measures. But it still prefers big projects that you can name after congressmen. You know, um, <laughs> that's the old model. And uh, uh, it's got a long way to go. But it will have no choice, just like the communities that are victimized by these uh, floods will have no choice if they want to stay alive. There are a lot of federal agencies involved in the relocation, not, not just Corps of Engineer, also FEMA. How effective and coordinated are their efforts? Well, not very. And uh, you know, these are some of the rebuilding needs that I talked about. Um, there is not a single office that a community could go to like Soldiers Grove to say, we want to relocate. What are all the different federal programs that uh, are in the taxpayer's interest that we can use to help us do this? It doesn't, that office doesn't exist. And so you have to be a, an excellent grantsman like Tom Hirsch was and the community was to go out there and find those pockets of money and knit it together into a coherent project. That's one thing. But another thing is that uh, much of flood control policy is still based on, on, on control and on structural approaches. Um, FEMA is not well equipped, I think, to help communities move. Uh, it's an option. They have a buy, what they call a, a buyout program where they will give a community 75% of money to buy flood prone homes at fair market value and destroy them, if not move them, and turn that land back to nature. That's, those are the provisions of this plan. But it now takes sometimes, often five years to close a real estate deal. And you can't do that to people. People can't twist in the wind for five years after a flood, waiting to see whether the government's gonna close the deal on buying their house. Uh, they're likely to move back and repair that house because they have to have some place to live and then lose all that capital investment. It gets, it gets pretty complicated, but the point is that the government is not well prepared to help communities do this. And there's a lot of, a lot of rebuilding of, of national water policy that has to happen. I mentioned this in the book and I love this story. There's a fellow named Gilbert White, now deceased, who became the father of non-structural flood control in the United States uh, out of Boulder, Colorado. And he was a congressional aide back in the 30s, um, about 1938, two years after the Congress sent the Corps forth to go out and tame the nation's rivers, subdue them with its bulldozers. But Gilbert was a congressional aide and he was on a committee uh, that uh, FDR appointed to, to come up with ideas about water policy. And the policy that this committee came up with was structural flood control. And Gilbert had the temerity in a, in a, at a conference one time to say publicly, you know, it makes a whole lot more sense to move people than to move rivers, uh, to control people than it does to control rivers. 
Congress investigated him for un-American ideas <laughs> after this made the press, I guess. And you know, that's how foreign this idea of letting nature be nature and moving people instead of natural systems uh, was to Congress and, and the nation's leaders at the time. But he was dead right. And uh, you know, his writings and what he taught now uh, are coming into uh, popular use because he was right all those years ago. We're talking with Bill Becker. His book is The Creeks Will Rise, People Coexisting with Floods. So how many communities will need to be relocated either partially or in whole to be safe from floods? Gee, you know, I can't remember what that number is, but I do remember, as I said, 41 million people. And somewhere here, I've got uh, some of these numbers written down. Um, For example, um, just to go back to Seacoast for a moment, which you can't forget about because there's so many people who live there and there's so much land uh, subject to damage. Um, It would cost $416 billion over the next 20 years for 14 different states to build seawalls against the kind of the sea level rise that's coming. I I don't know if your uh, listeners have tracked this, but um, because water warms uh, in the ocean as climate changes and warmer water expands, and because uh, ice fields uh, at the poles are melting, the land-based ice fields, and dumping water to the oceans, the oceans are rising. So when there's a storm, uh, the water storm surge is much greater moving inland. But now, in, especially in Florida, but all along the Atlantic coast, there's communities that are experiencing flooding on sunny days, not associated with any uh, storm, but associated with rising tides because the water is so high to begin with, it comes in and just uh, creates what we used to call ankle ticklers uh, on the streets. And uh, so these communities are having to reckon with this. But um, yeah, 41 million people uh, just along our rivers and creeks, and then probably another 100 million living within reach of oceans right now. Um, and many, 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 many communities, both small and large. Now, urban flooding is a huge problem, a growing problem, as well as the kind of small community flooding that you and I have been talking about at the neighborhood scale flooding. Uh, urban floods are happening more frequently as well. So we're talking about big cities and small all around the country that have to deal with this. There's not any state in this country and probably very few places in the world that are not subject to flooding at one time or another, whether it's heavy precipitation or a body of water. When it comes to relocating, would you prioritize communities to be relocated by the degree of risk they face, the degree of impact that the risk would would result in, or their amenability to move? I mean, how how would you prioritize them? Well, if I were a a clear-thinking bureaucrat, I would prioritize it on the basis of the bang for the buck, you know, the cost-benefit analyses to say, hey, we're going to save this money for taxpayers by moving this community first and this one second. Uh, but as a practical matter, um, the government is, uh, is not real eager to go in and condemn land. Uh, people have uh, the correct perception that the Constitution gives us the right to own property, but they also think falsely that it gives us the right to own that property anywhere we want. Um, and some communities now are considering, and even the Army Corps of Engineers is considering condemning uh, property uh, in the public interest, but that's not something Congress wants to do. Uh, so uh, people's willingness to move out voluntarily is, is going to be a big factor too. But as a matter of policy, uh, it's going to be bang for the buck that decides who goes first. If we and, made and, and save lives as well. Yeah. If we made serious changes to the National Flood Insurance Program, would that incentivize people to want to relocate their communities? Yeah, I think it would certainly remove barriers so that more who maybe are on the fence would do it. And I think the more communities that relocate and show it can be done and show all the advantages of it, uh, the more communities will do it. So we need to get that ball rolling and the momentum going and those examples out there, and and some already exist, of how many co-benefits, as they call them, are involved in moving out of a floodplain. Uh, You could rebuild your infrastructure, you can move your well so it's not contaminated during floods. You can build brand new buildings that are modern, energy efficient, even renewable energy, heated and, and powered buildings. Uh, you can follow uh, more modern urban design principles. Uh, so the community is laid out so to minimize transportation energy use. 
you, there's so much you can do when you're building new again. Um, and the, we're, we're seeing some examples of that already, especially at a place uh, called uh, Pattonsburg, Missouri. Um, there's also a community in Illinois that we helped um, that really has turned into a model project for the, for the country. I'm trying to remember its name. Uh, Galmire, Illinois uh, has done a marvelous job. Um, so the more that move, the more that will move, uh, but you need to remove the barriers at the federal and state level. We've talked about some of the difficulties the federal government has had in flood control or flood risk management. Are there federal policies that actually make the climate crisis worse? Oh my God, yes. Yeah, uh, you know, right now, as we talk, as you know, we've got the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia. And the president has warned us rightly that we're going to see some impact of our sanctions against Russia in our energy prices, which already, especially gasoline and oil, are very high because of inflation. And our, if they haven't already, I think they have gone over $100 a barrel. Uh, we've had almost every economic recession since World War II has been preceded by that kind of spike in oil prices. So we're gonna feel the pain of that. And what it tells us is something we've known since the 1970s when we had back-to-back -back oil crises because of Middle East, Eastern countries sanctions against us, that we are subject to being manipulated. We're subject to seeing our economy uh, go belly up uh, by our continued addiction to oil. Something George Bush said that we are addicted to oil. Um, and rather than making more uh, to try to get out of these kinds of squeezes, we need to pass things like the Build Back Better bill to begin to transition our economy to renewable, inexhaustible, clean uh, energy, uh, native energy, domestic energy, so that we're not subject to this kind of blackmail uh, from other countries or this uh, ancillary effect of sanctions on other countries. Um, and I don't know whether we're gonna get that message. Republicans already are blaming Biden for this mess and blaming him for high energy prices. But the fact that we ride that roller coaster and the fact that oil costs so much right now and people are feeling the pinch of oil prices at the pump, that's all because we're addicted to the stuff. And we have been, well, we've been subsidizing it since the late 1800s oil. And we continue to subsidize it right now to a tune of $20 billion a year. Every one of us is helping pay for the production of oil uh, through our taxes. And when you count the lung diseases that come from pollution from oil, you count the national uh, defense costs of patrolling shipping lanes and all that stuff, uh, our subsidies actually come out to short of $700 billion a year to keep oil production going in this country. Uh, we need to wean ourselves off from that. And that's partly what uh, the president wants to do, uh, not only for climate change, but for national security. You know, there's so much property and money and national security at stake that you would think the realtors and the capitalists and the industrialists would have the political and economic clout to do something about climate change, but apparently the fossil fuel industry has more money and more clout. That's correct. You know, funny thing you mentioned realtors. Um, you would think that realtors wouldn't want to help people build in the path of a natural disaster too, but in fact they do. Um, and that's one of the reasons we have a, a rising problem even now with weather getting worse. And the, because the land in floodplains is cheap, so developers want it, they can increase their profits by building. And the communities go along with it because it raises their property tax base, their revenues. So we see this floodplain development continuing today. It, it, water has magnetism. It draws people to it. There's something about it, whether it's physiological or spiritual or whatever. People want to live on the ocean, they want to live on rivers and lakes. Um, um, and so the communities, because of tax base and developers, because of profits go along with that. And what's happening is more and more people are susceptible to natural disasters and more and more money is being spent from taxpayers to take care of these disasters rather than being spent on things like closing the income gap and the wealth gap in this country and other such stuff. There's a beautiful quote from President Kennedy about how we all love to go down to the sea because the salination level of the ocean is the same as in our blood and that we are we are drawn metaphysically uh, to the sea, you know, to, back to from where we came. But if FEMA is right, and by the end of the century, floodplains will be 40 to 50% larger than they are now, what are the practical and economic implications of that? Well, it's a, 
one of the implications is budgetary, and it means that we're going to be, as I alluded to, we're going to be diverting billions and billions and billions of dollars to pay for disasters or to try to prevent them by controlling nature and diverting that money from other more important purposes and more pressing, more humanistic purposes. But a lot of death, a lot of destruction, a lot of disruption for families. Having, I don't know if you've ever been in a place that's been struck by floods. One of the things that's happened to me since Soldiers Grove is that I ended up helping other communities figure out whether they could relocate and how to do it. And ended up working with, uh, while I was at the Department of Energy, working with scores of communities. Uh, and so I was at, uh, in New Orleans right after Hurricane Katrina, working in the Lower Ninth Ward with the very poor people in that ward about how they were going to be rebuilt or where. I ended up in Thailand after the Christmas tsunami, helping the, uh, the Navy rebuild homes there. And if you've ever been in a community that's been hit with flood, uh, floods, uh, it really strikes you. I mean, you have to see it to, to understand. When I went into Hurricane Katrina's aftermath, I got physically ill. It was just unbelievable, unbelievable the damages. And the buildings marked with bodies inside and, and, and the huge ships that had been washed ashore were sitting right in the middle of neighborhoods. And, uh, it's, just, uh, it's a calamity that we should not invite upon our people. And uh, we, we need to help them avoid it. And, and the thing about floods is that the impact lingers. I mean, that the, the mud and the sewage and, and the, uh, all the stuff that washes into your house and, and creates havoc, it's, it's not just, okay, the flood's over. The, flood, the impact of the flood lingers. Yeah, frankly, I wouldn't want to move back into a house that had been filled with sewage. Yeah. even if they uh, you know, stripped it down to studs and rebuilt it from the inside. But that's what uh, people end up doing. And uh, not only that, but the community or the neighborhoods it takes years, people don't understand. It takes years and years to ever come back to any sense of normalcy after one of these disasters. You mentioned uh, President Biden and the Build Back Better. Some of the first actions he took, um, re he reversed the former guy's anti-environmental actions. He sometimes restored President Obama's directives, sometimes improved on what they did. What mark do you give him for dealing with the climate crisis and its ramifications? I give him a, uh, let's say an A minus for his intentions. Um, and I don't blame him for the fact that most of those intentions have not yet been realized. Um, I think we all know uh, what the resistance on the Hill is, but, uh, Republicans as a, as a group, unfortunately, have never wanted to recognize uh, climate change. And, and they still do not vote in favor of bills like the Build Back Better. Um, so as a, as a group, they're locked into not denial anymore, but into arguing over what to do about it and how much to spend on it and what the role of government should be. But the end result is that we haven't done anything. Congress has not done anything about climate change substantively since 1992. And meanwhile, the weather's getting worse and worse and more irreversibly worse all the time. Uh, and meanwhile, the United States is looked at by other countries as a bad faith partner in terms of reducing greenhouse gases, which has to happen globally. No one country can solve it. So uh, Biden has, has more aspirations and more specific policy plans than any previous president to deal with climate change and more political will, I think he has to do it but we cannot get Congress to move off the dime and realize how serious, how, how, how dramatic a problem this is, and how if we keep letting it go, we won't be able to get back to where we were. It'll be irreversible, it'll be catastrophic, it'll be incredibly costly, it'll be a national security problem, it'll be a social problem, um, and on and on and on. So I don't know, um, you know, I and a lot of my colleagues, and perhaps you too every now and again, get near a point of despair at how uh, how we just are avoiding this problem. And it's going to be bad if we don't address if, it. If the Democrats had won that North Carolina Senate seat, we, we would be in a whole lot better shape. You include an appendix with a raft of recommendations. Which are the most urgent? Well, I think the set of recommendations around, as I mentioned earlier, removing the barriers to a rational approach to all of this, which is to get out of the way. Uh, so um, I would give states more authority to approve uh, these buyout programs so it happens faster. It doesn't have to go through Washington red tape for five years before a home could be purchased. 
Um, I would consolidate, as I mentioned earlier, uh, into a single office, all the federal programs that can come to bear um, uh, because there's agricultural dimensions, there's uh, infrastructure dimensions and, and a lot of different agencies are implicated. So I would do a one-stop shop in effect to make it easier for people to access the help they need to do this kind of program. And in fact, I would create um, teams, they used to call them tiger teams, but I, this is what I did when I was at DOE, uh, send teams of experts into communities to hold community-wide meetings and to talk to those communities about what future do you want? What do you want your future and your kids' future to be? Because really what you're doing now is making investments in your kids' town. They'll inhabit it much longer than you will. So we had these teams of experts. Uh, they could have been um, architects and engineers and landscape people and so on, energy experts go into these towns, hold town meetings over an entire weekend, Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, and have them visualize for us what town they wanted, the things they didn't want to recreate from their old town, the things they wanted to add that they didn't have in their old town. And we would all spend all Saturday night building models, actual models of what that new community could look like. And when they came back Sunday, we'd have them critique the model and we'd adjust it. We need that kind of handhold uh, and I mean that in a positive sense. We need that kind of technical help because most communities don't understand the full menu of choices they have. Energy technologies are changing all the time. You know, enlightened urban development uh, principles are changing all the time. And when you bring experts in who know what that menu is, they're not there to dictate what should be done or even to recommend it, to simply say, hey, you may not have known about this, but consider it. You know, Here's a menu of choices you may not know about. So we need that kind of... Uh, person-to-person, face-to-face assistance, um, whether it's federal government, or it's contract to universities or uh, wherever, or NGOs, wherever it's done, we need that kind of help. Asking the question or asking people to talk about the future we want sounds like something the United Nations would be interested in. <laughs> oh, you're sly. Uh, <laughs> nice transition. Yeah, uh, what's Stu is talking about, listeners, uh, is that... Uh, I was working in New York uh, at one point several years ago uh, for a communications company, a big communications company. And they had the contract to help the United Nations organize a big climate conference in Copenhagen, uh, which was supposed to be the conference in which the world finally got together. All the nations agreed to do something about climate change. Um, but they couldn't, the UN could not think of a slogan. It needed to have a slogan, a tagline, as they called it. And a friend of mine uh, who I worked with at DOE had, uh, had talked about the future we want when he worked with communities, he talked to, to them about that phrase. And so I got a meeting with the communications director at the UN and I went over and suggested, why don't you guys uh, adopt the future we want as your tagline? Because we had learned, my friend and I, that there's really power in that phrase for some reason. People were anxious to talk about the future they wanted uh, as well as, or instead of the future they wanted to avoid. Because when you talk about the negative, uh, you can actually bring it about. You can, you can get so fixated on fear uh, and the negative that, um, um, that it disables you, it disempowers you. So you need at the same time, you're talking realistically about what the dangers are, you need to talk about what the possibilities are. And it turned out that the future we want was a, was a phrase that encapsulated, hey, let's be positive for a second. Let's talk about what we have the power to change. So it went up the chain of command all the way up to Ban Ki-moon, who was the secretary general at the time. He loved it. He decided to adopt it for the rest of his tenure at the UN. They called this conference in, uh, this was a conference that was happening in Rio, the biggest sustainable development conference the UN had ever held. Uh, they used the tagline, the future we want. And we created a website, a partner and I, and the UN created a parallel website where we asked the whole world to tell us what future they wanted. <laughs> And we got cards and letters and poems and songs and, and uh, drawings and all kinds of stuff from all over the world that we posted on these websites. And we did an exhibit at the Rio conference. So all the delegates, you know, the presidents of countries and all of the delegates would pass by all these images of the future uh, as, as they went into the, the conference room where they all negotiated. Um, so I, I used that and uh, we really wanted to keep that phrase alive and build museum exhibits about the future we want and do a whole bunch of stuff. We never found the funding to do it. But we still need to have two forces for change. One is the push of what we're trying to get away from and the pull of what we're trying to get to. We need both those forces to undergo the kind of change 
uh, at the level we need to undergo it in this country, and worldwide, actually. One of your recommendations is that the president should create a national flood avoidance task force. Now, you know people in the executive branch. Uh, have you tried to make this happen? Yeah, yeah, I have. Uh, I've been in communication with FEMA. Uh, and uh, I, I've sent ideas to the crew that's, that's in Biden's White House right now. Um, right now, I think other things are on their plate. Yeah. But there are people in the bureaucracy, obviously, who understand the sense of this and would like to see it go in this direction. And there are a number of studies that have come out in recent years verifying that it's much more cost-effective to move people out of danger than it is to help them recover from, from disasters. So, uh, you know, the, the information, the analytic information, empirical information proof is there. It's a matter of having the political will. And once again, Congress is kind of scared of this, uh, kind of scared of saying, you can, let's, let's all of you move instead of us building a, a dam so you could stay there next to that water. Uh, but what's gonna happen um, in addition to the weather is that uh, insurance costs are gonna rise for people who live in these dangerous areas. Um, rebuilding costs are going to rise. Uh, their property taxes are gonna to have to go up so that the community could repair its infrastructure after floods and so on. And uh, on and on it goes so that it becomes untenable, you know, unaffordable for a lot of people to live uh, in these disaster zones. And one of the critiques, by the way, is that uh, FEMA's programs now to help communities do this are biased, they're not environmentally fair uh, or economically fair, that uh, a lot of flood is inhabited by low-income families that can't afford to move, um, and there's not enough help to uh, have them do it. So one of the things that FEMA and other agents have to grapple with is environmental justice in, in the solution to floods. It's easy to say, just get rid of the flood insurance program and, and make it economically not viable for people to live there. But if the people who live there cannot afford to move and live someplace else, you've got a quandary. Right. And one of the things that the communities that do move have to factor in is low income housing, affordable housing it has to be part and parcel of, of, of the new development. Now, a lot of communities uh, accept this FEMA help and just let property owners scatter to the winds. And when they do that, of course, they lose property tax revenue and the ability to provide public services. So what I've advocated in the book and ever since is that you have a project where we try to relocate these properties within the community's borders. So there's some social coherence uh, retained, the, the tax revenues are retained. You can infill development where there's vacant lots or homes for sale, but you try to keep people in the community just out of danger. Um, and uh, that's federal policy needs to be designed to help that happen too. And that's why I was talking about these teams that should go in and work with the whole community and envision what they like, want their future to look like. Um, anyway, so like I say, there's so many dimensions to this and it goes in so many directions. The, the successes and failures of the urban renewal of the 60s and 70s should be instructive to people doing this kind of community relocation and understand the need for retaining the community cohesion and not just scattering the people. As, I'm, as I noted in the introduction, your background is in journalism and publishing. At what point did you learn enough about the environment and energy to become regional director of the Department of Energy and executive director of the Presidential Climate Action Program and so on? Well, they say about journalists that we know a little bit about a lot of things and a lot about nothing. And I think that pretty much describes me. But Soldier's Grove was my start in all of this in terms of environmental stuff, you know, this whole idea of letting the river be a river uh, and moving people, uh, the solar dimension. Uh, today, we would call what Soldier's Grove and other communities like it have done uh, climate mitigation by using solar instead of producing greenhouse gases, mitigating climate change. And the other one is adaptation, getting the hell out of the way of, of the disasters that are beginning to manifest right now. So Soldier's Grove was way ahead of its time, not because of any genius on my part, but because of realities, just facing realities. Um, so, but anyway, that's where I got my start. I, I was first exposed and to community development also, and to working with people to, 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 to shape the future. All of that started in this little town of 500 people. I mentioned that the book was both frightening and inspiring. How would you describe your attitude in writing it? Were you angry? Were you hopeful? Were you feeling like an Old Testament prophet? Uh, I was feeling like somebody who had to 
regurgitate a whole lot of information and hopefully in a narrative that was inspirational and that would talk people into the plausibility of, of dealing with nature in a different way. And as, as you know, the second half of the book is quite different than the first. The first is all about what you and I've been talking about. The second is about our relationship with nature overall and how uh, it has been one of control and manipulation. And now we're finding that we're reaching the limits of the planet's ability to withstand what we do to it. And we need to learn to collaborate with nature and come to a whole different relationship with it and understand that we're part of it. We're not superior to it and apart from it, that we are part of uh, the biosphere and we need to take care of it. So that was the second half of the book. And, and that to me is the larger lesson. I don't, I think I'd use a more elegant term than regurgitate, but, uh, but <laughs> you, you, you have, you have provided um, an, an interesting and insightful analysis, both of the experiences you had and the, the problems we face and the potential ways out of it. And uh, uh, it's, it's, I think it's a great accomplishment and I, uh, it's, I'm happy we had this chance to talk. You're very kind. You're very kind. Thank you, Stu. It means a lot. And I'm afraid that is all the time we have today with Bill Becker. Again, the book is The Creeks Will Rise, People Coexisting with Floods from the Good People at Chicago River Press. George Dreckman will be your host next week when his guest will be Jacob Schlichter to discuss his book, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, uh, Don't We All? It is also a pledge drive show, so do please tune in and show your support. I will be back on March 28th also to feature a music-related book, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, by our friend Jim Birkenstadt. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-supported community radio.